0: Hi, friends.
1: Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Should I Delete That podcast. We could not think of a more important way to celebrate International Women's Day than to raise awareness for one of the most common and urgent issues affecting women. With that in mind, we are really proud to say that today's episode is in partnership with Refuge, the charity that provides special support for women and children experiencing domestic violence.
0: We speak to three brilliant women in this episode, but first we must give a trigger warning as this episode goes in depth and detail about domestic abuse. Survivor Natasha Saunders shares her story of domestic violence with bravery and vulnerability. It was an incredibly moving interview that stayed with us long after. Cherie Blair lends us her expert legal opinion on the injustices that women face in the legal system. And Refuge CEO Ruth Davison tells us how Refuge's frontline
1: services are working tirelessly to save women's lives. Before we get into the episode, we just want to let you know that all of Refuge's information is in the show notes, so too is the National Domestic Abuse Helpline. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and somebody will be there to help you. The number is 0808 Now here's Natasha.
0: Hi, hi Natasha. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us on here today, we've been really excited to have you on and to open this conversation. You are a victim of domestic abuse and male violence and you're now sharing your story far and wide to help others who are in a similar position and to help push forward the conversation around domestic abuse and eventually hopefully put an end to it so thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for sharing you know what is your trauma and your pain and we can't imagine how painful it must be but we know how valuable this conversation will be and how necessary it is um so so yeah thank you thank you for joining us we would love to to kick off with hearing about your story about as much of it as you're willing to share with us if that's okay
3: yeah that's not a problem at all So um, when I was 17, I met a man who basically waged war on my body and mind. Um, Very, very quickly, we went from, you know, the odd text to him texting me like 50 times a day, checking on me, phoning me, didn't want me to go out with friends, it wasn't safe, didn't want me to work, it wasn't safe. You know, he wanted to provide for me and... I came from quite a a dysfunctional background. So for me, it was like, okay, this is somebody who wants to take care of me. And I was completely love bombed. You know, Mm. just absolutely convinced that this outpouring of obsessive attention was normal. There was a time not long after we met when I went to a party and he found out and he then phoned me an hour later saying he'd taken an overdose screaming down the phone I'm dying this is all your fault and then two or three hours later I had a message going I've been arrested for headbutting or punching a police officer I've got my phone in my cell and I'm sat there going look I'm 17 I know you're 14 years older than me but I'm not stupid wow so he was 31 at the time is that yeah right? yeah. And a, yeah, yeah okay yeah.
0: so there's a big age difference
3: and a lot of people yeah a lot of people went well why wasn't that the point where you walked away But what it was is that whole sort of, I I can protect him. Maybe I could help him. It wasn't his fault. He was broken by his ex-wife. She cheated on him and stole from him and all the things on earth that could have gone wrong. It was all her fault. Mm. And the next thing I knew, I was living with him. I wasn't going to see my family. I changed my mobile number so nobody could get hold of me. And I remember saying, I'm going to meet my mum at the train station, which was not far at all. And he was like, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. And he turned around, turned his phone around to an intimate image of me and was like, no, you're not. Or I'll send this to your parents and show them what a little slut you are.
1: Oh, my God. Wow! I
3: was like, sorry. And it was just, whoa, you know. Mm. And, you know, he would go online. He'd take intimate images and videos of me um, and he would go online and try and find women for threesomes. He would just mentally beat me down, but Mm. never directly. You know, it was never a, you're not wearing that. It was a case of, you're not going out in that, are you? Or is that what you're wearing out? And I'd go, yeah. "Yeah. What's wrong with it? Nothing. And I'd go upstairs and change. I'd come down and he would go, what did you get changed for? So for a long time, I was like, it's me. It's my insecurity. I get changed because I'm insecure. I'm, You know. Um, Then I fell pregnant and everything went from bad to worse.
0: And how old were you when you fell pregnant?
3: 19. I was 19. Wow. So this had been going on for two years? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I fell pregnant. I wasn't maternal. I wanted a career. I wanted nothing okay. more than to go out into the world and, and make my mark. Had you
1: been working before, prior to getting pregnant? Or he no. Didn't want I, you had,
3: I had done the odd thing. So, like, he was working in a career place at this point and I worked in the office. I worked there for three or four weeks before he told me that I wasn't working there anymore. Okay. I did work when I was with him. For his boss launching a new office and he would have my wages paid on his tax code which was ridiculous because he paid more tax but for that it all went into his account his control right. so he right. controlled your money yeah oh yeah everything yeah. everything um I wasn't allowed to leave the house without him wow sorry to to jump around but can no, I ask no. how you met him I was working at a horse yard and I had a pony. My sister's pony was for sale. And he messaged me, look, I'm really interested in the pony for my little girl. And it went from there to him right. completely spamming me with messages. You he- described at the um,
1: beginning that he was love bombing you when yeah. when you were like 17 obviously we have that language now
3: to know yeah. what
1: love bombing is and, and, and if you don't know it's exactly like you describe it's it's like a it's
3: being bombed with love it's being yeah. gizzle- bombed with oh, love you know? and it's
1: intense yeah. isn't it it's like addi- I'm addicted to you and I worship you and, and the, you know so yeah, much yeah, 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 yeah. so much to unpick there I but... want
3: to protect you I want to mm. love you I want to I, why do you want to go out with other people when you could be at home with me and, yeah. and I don't understand why people go out for a night out I mean they only go out if they want to screw somebody obviously well I don't want to mm. screw anybody well there we go, stay at home on the sofa with me it's all yeah. this very very full on manipulative behaviour
0: it's such an insidious it's an incredibly insidious psychological trick isn't it because Absolutely. combining the bad stuff you know the abuse with a barrage of love is is really I can imagine extremely confusing and really is just an, an absolute fuck that just complete, completely messes with you
1: But it also, it pries on every young girl's Uh, we're sold this like dream of love and you want a man that's gonna like kiss the ground you work yeah Yeah, and he's gonna protect you and keep you safe and so it's like it's all part of our conditioning that they can really play on that and take advantage of it and obviously being 17 and you know I I guess you know and I don't want to assume but you said you know you come from a dysfunctional family yeah
3: we moved around the country nonstop. I went to so many different schools you know we were never in one place for more than a couple of years and so you know he had a House and he had a car on finance, which is something I always say. And people go, and I was like, but my parents had such an unreliable history that wasn't obtainable to them. He had an ex-wife, but he still saw his child at the weekends, so it seemed like this. He was so responsible, and I didn't come from that sort of background. So for me, it was like, well, this is this is what I'm sold that life is. This is what you know. You're supposed to have a house and a car and 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 have, have your responsibilities. It seemed. As you said, that ideal that you're sold, that's what you're supposed to have. Yeah. And yeah. you're
0: 17, you haven't found your feet yet in the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you're not only incredibly like impressionable uh, and vulnerable, but also like desperate for validation. So, can you take us then to back to 19, then when you fell pregnant and the relationship yeah. took, a, took a turn, you know, e- even more for the worse?
3: Yeah. So, basically, he at that point, he was a long distance courier. Um, so, he'd go from like Portsmouth to Aberdeen. Or something I'd have to go with him the day I was a, a week overdue with Darcy when I went into labor so well I said to him I want to go home it's like five o'clock in the morning I'm done with this I'm ratty so he dropped me home he had one more drive from where we were near Worthing to to Gatwick not far I went to bed I got up went to the toilet and noticed that I was spotting so I first time mum panicked phoned the hospital midwife was like sweetheart it's totally fine Baby's probably on her way soon. Unless it's like an egg cup, don't panic. I was like, okay, phoned her on the toilet. I was like, okay, got up, walked to the bedroom and somebody threw a bucket. Literally blood went up the walls, all over the bed. It was absolutely, sorry to be graphic, but it really, I'm hysterical. I phoned her back, you need to come in. We're going to send an ambulance. I phoned him. No. What do you mean no? You wait for me to come back and you're going to clean it up. You need to clean up the bed and yourself and get yourself sorted. When I'm back, and I've had something to eat, then we'll go to the hospital. So I eventually get to the hospital and they stick me in the surgical suite. When when did you last feel baby move? I don't know. I, I don't know. Oh my god, you know. So they stick me on a drip induction. They forgot to give me an epidural. Um, so I'm on this drip induction and it's really full on. And he sat there eating food he's bought from the shop. Then he goes home for a couple of hours, says to me, Don't don't have the baby whilst I'm gone, will you? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Wait there. I'll cross my legs. Cheers. So he comes back, and uh all of a sudden, they lose a heartbeat. And the whole room just poof, there are people Ugh. everywhere. There's a woman between my legs, a consultant between my legs. She's like, I've got to give you a cut. I'm like, do whatever you've got to do, you know, all that sort of thing. Anyway, she's born by Von Hoos. Starts screaming immediately. Huge relief. And um, gets put in my arms and just sort of looked at her. And in that instant, you go from, baby to, Wow. And I was like, mm. I made that. She's screaming, and I'm looking at her, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. And I'm just like, oh my God, you know, it's really overwhelming. And then he turns around and says, don't just stare at it, shut it up, and walks out the delivery suite. He never changed the nappy. He never fed her. He never cleaned her. I mean, considering after I left, I found out he's a convicted sex offender of a child under the age of 14, the relief of that is quite profound. Um, But, yeah, I didn't find that out until I left in a Kafkas report, yeah, in family court hearings when he was asking for my now husband to be checked under Sarah's law. Mm. And then it came out that he's a sex offender that got 200 hours community service and a downgraded charge from rape to uh, indecent assault because he pleaded guilty. Oh, Oh.
1: so because he pled guilty to rape... He got charged with not rape. Yeah. It's this a common thing. So
3: it's so it's, it's, it's a common thing. Yeah, it's a common thing. If you plead guilty, they'll downgrade your charge, yeah. So anyway, so um, Darcy was two and a half and I fell pregnant again on the pill. And I was like, fuck. Mm. Now, I've been through quite a lot in my life and I don't think I've ever been in such a dark period as that time.
0: Was that because, I mean, well, i am I'm guessing it was because of you know, just a, a a sheer accumulation of the abuse that you'd suffered now for going on far no,
3: it was years. it was the absolute horror of bringing another child into it. I was barely protecting my daughter as it was from it,
0: okay. You're thinking, I can't do this. I can't bring another baby into this this world that I'm living in here. Um,
3: what what happened from from there on out? so. Um, he was working for Hermes at the time so he could have you know, up to 160 parcels a day he would stay in bed and I would get up I would put all the postcodes into AA Route Planner and optimise them and then I'd write all the numbers down the side of the postcodes and then I would stack all the parcels in order after I'd scanned them and then I would load them in the car and sit next to him whilst he delivered them with with our daughter strapped in the back for like five hours
1: and this was because he didn't want you home alone. Mhm.
3: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um and then yeah, yeah, um it gets worse. Brace yourself. <laughs> um and then I was 10 days overdue and that day I'd done one of the horses, I'd done a food shop, I'd done a sponsored mile walk around the field with with my daughter who was 3 at the time. Um I'd stacked 160 parcels and helped him deliver them. I wasn't allowed to get out the car, mind you, in case any of the customers tried to talk to me right okay and went home was having contractions so probably just Braxton Hicks let's just roll with it got to a certain point and my contractions were like 50 seconds apart and I'm like right the hospital was a good 35 to 40 minutes from our house so I phoned the uh the midwife, and she was like, sweetie, trust me, if you were in established labor with no, know. She said, tell me about your first birth story, because it's not interrupting your voice if you're having them washed on the phone. So I said, well, I gave birth, and had, uh, had a, a drip induction with no epidural, and she went, sorry, she said, you need to come in now. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I went down and I said, we need to go to the hospital, I'm in labour. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you doing this on purpose? In rush hour?
0: <laughs>
3: yes. Correct. I am. His mum wouldn't look after my daughter whilst I was in labour. So he went to the hospital with the child in tow. And when my contractions got to a point where I was like, I asked him to leave. So ex went with child about seven at night. I had another cut because of a scar Mm. tissue down there where it hadn't healed properly, which is basically Mm. where my ex had raped me too soon after my daughter was born. And... I had my son, absolutely no trouble whatsoever. So he's born at 10 to 10 at night. Um, Yeah. Brilliant. Take a picture of him, send it to him. Here's your son. Bless him. Get your stuff together, I'm coming to get you. Oh, my
0: God.
3: Sorry, I'm coming to get you. You're coming home. Who's going to do the parcels in the morning? So that's me going to the midwife. You know, I'm fine. I, I, I just want to go home. I just, I'm really, I'm a home bunny, you know? And you get really good at lying. You get really good at lying. Mm. And um, off we went. Well, he came in. Off we went home. Get back. I'm trying to settle a three-year-old who's been woken up twice. Um, has a new baby and is really confused about the situation. And he screams from the bedroom, shut up, you little cunt. We love the new baby more than you already.
0: Oh, my God. So
3: settle the baby. I settle our daughter. I get into bed. And he decides then it's a good time to rape me.
0: No, no.
3: Um, oh rip my God. stitches. No. Um, I remember so being sorry. in the bathroom. It's not your fault. You're not a rapist. Oh it's okay. Um, I remember being in the bathroom. We had like a toilet that was just a toilet room and then everything else was separate. And I remember leaning against the wall, quite literally pissing out blood.
0: Oh, my God. And I
3: remember thinking, what the fuck am I going to do? Because I can't go to a midwife and be like, oh yeah, I tripped and accident," you know. Mm. So I just rode it out. Three weeks I couldn't sit down for. Um, It almost certainly got infected, given the pain. (laughs)
1: Um, Prior to this, the Mm -hmm. the abuse that you described, you know, was fairly, you know, extensively psychological. Had it been physical or was this...
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I left in 2015, I told the police that it wasn't physical. That's actually in my, my statement the day mm. I left. Mm. But looking back at the time, I class physical abuse as being punched in the face,
0: mm. being
3: kicked in the shins, pinched, given dead arms and legs, shoved against a wall, shoved against a wardrobe, having hands put around your throat until you're choked unconscious is physical abuse. So yes, I was yeah. physically abused did he punch me yeah once 15 times 16 times in front of my mother who then went home afterwards
0: oh my god
3: so after my son was born in Mm. the morning I got up feeding a baby in my arms doing the parcels parcel guy turns up I walk out there he's like where's the baby I'm like oh he's in the house (laughs) because obviously bump's gone he's like what the fuck are you doing out here then where is he I went he's in bed because he's tired because I made him come and get me last night so he comes in, calls him, get your ass downstairs, you know. He thought he was doing me a favour, he was not doing me a favour.
1: So your ex assumed that you'd gone to him for help?
3: Yeah. Are you fucking him, are you? Are you sleeping with him? And all that sort of thing. So yeah, so anyway, so at this point he went through job after job because he'd quit and go, I need to keep an eye on you. Right. And then eventually he got a job in like delivering cars at a Ford dealership so um but just before that the summer before that I left
0: can I ask how psychologically you came to a point where you decided that you were ready to leave was the I mean was there like a straw that broke broke the camel's back or was it again just the accumulation like how, how did you come to a point where you're like this is it I have to leave
3: I knew I had to leave from when I was about eight weeks pregnant with my daughter wow and I didn't leave till she was almost six okay okay Just because you know you have to leave doesn't make it any easier. When I lecture at the Mm -hmm. Met, so I lecture at the Metropolitan Police or their new recruits every five weeks, what I say to them is, imagine what you've brought into work today. I'm now going to take your bank card out of that and I'm going to cut your phone off because I'm going to report it stolen within the next 24 hours. You can't go home. You don't know where you're sleeping tonight. And by the way, any pets you've got, if they're like my ex, they're going to kick them in the ribs around the kitchen every time you do something wrong. Because the amount of times I got between him and the German shepherd, so I took the kick in the ribs and she didn't, is unbelievable.
0: That is absolutely horrific. And I can't believe that you just, you had to put up with it for so long. That's just so awful. And I'm really sorry. Um, but I'm just, I'm I'm wondering what was the point, What what made you think like, okay, you know, I absolutely have to, like, this is, I have to just, I have to do something.
3: I guess, I guess my kids, I guess I just didn't want my son to ever think that he could treat women like that. I didn't want my daughter to think a man could treat her like that. I left and I went back because my mum invited him to her house and said that there wasn't really room for us there, even though I'd disclosed that he was raping me on the way back to her and her partner. At the time, I didn't realize that her partner was actually beating the living shit out of her on a regular basis.
0: You know, th- those women like your mum and his mum, I guess they had, they were almost desensitized to what you were going through because they had uh, been exposed to so much of it. And Absolutely. They'd kind of Absolutely. lost perspective.
3: Yeah. My mum has horrendous mental health problems. She is a child of sexual abuse. She has been thrown from pillar to post her whole life. I mean, don't get me wrong, my dad wasn't an abuser, but my dad is also a bit broken from his own childhood. Um, and he never abused my mum, but he didn't help the situation, you know. And so I went back. That was August 2014. And then Christmas 2014, I wanted a new pillow on Christmas Eve. And um, we'd gone into town, all of us together, walked into town so our car had been repossessed again. And um, I saw the police officer who had attended when I left in the summer, uh, the one who had come and interviewed me. And um, I remember him looking at me as he held a door. And I don't think in my entire life I've ever felt so ashamed because he knew I'd gone back. That, yeah, that Christmas, I was then like, look, I'm walking around the corner to Tesco. It's a five-minute walk. I'm getting a pillow. I'm going. And he went absolutely mad, started calling me a whore and a slut. And and my then five-year-old looked up and went, don't you call my mummy that? And he went nose to nose with her and started. And I just was like, oh, my God, this sooner or later, this is going to become my kids once they get their own mind. And he'd do things like... Like that, I think it was at Christmas Eve, he bought me a handbag that we couldn't afford. And I didn't want it. And he went into TK Maxx and bought it anyway. And he came out. He was like, you do want that bag. And I was like, it's okay. You want it, don't you? Go on, let me treat you. Okay, fine. And he went and bought it, came out, gave it to me and was like, you're such a selfish bitch. And I was like, Jesus Christ. But you, and he was like, no, all you do is go on. You make me feel like shit. You're a bitch. You're a self, in public. And I'm just stood there like, oh my God. Oh my this God. happens in public. Does anybody... It happens in public all the time. And and does anybody do? And did anybody ever no. intervene or help no. you? Which is I why know. I always stand up and go, "Do you have a problem?" Yeah. Or yeah. I wait until they go to the toilet, and I'll follow them in the toilet and go. There's something called the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, and I give them the helpline number or my business card because at the end of the day. I'm not going to stand by and watch that. If you're yeah. complacent, this is what I say to the Metropolitan Police as well, like we were talking about the Hotton report and the joking of rape. And I was like, if your friend in the force jokes about rape and it makes you uncomfortable, but you sort of, <laughs> okay, you're complacent in it. Mm. You're being complacent and you're complicit in the situation. Would you walk past a woman in the street being raped? No. When you joke about something, it takes away the seriousness of it. You mentioned... Uh, that you now talk
1: to the police, like, and, and you, you you lecture at um, the Metropolitan Police. Uh, and again, I think alluding there to like th- the recent news that there have been texts and WhatsApps emerging that, you know, there are police officers that are joking about this. And obviously like on the back of what happened to Sarah Everard um, at the hands of a Metropolitan Police officer, like, I wonder, how do you feel about the
3: police? I know obviously you work with them now, my honest opinion is, I think when you believe, you begin to believe that all the police are bad, that's like believing all every man is an abuser. Mm-hmm. I cannot fault my police officer from Sussex Police in my case. He's the most amazing human. He emailed me just the other day to tell me about that he'd told someone about my case and who I've become and how proud he is. And you know, I lecture at the Met and I talk to the new recruits and I always say to them, you know, I gave I gave a talk there the day after Wayne Cousins was um, was convicted. And I would put a, a post online before that going, you know, just so you know, I don't believe all police officers deserve bashing over this. It's an attitude, not a, a job description that's a problem. And I got a phone call immediately from somebody quite high up in the Met and I thought, shit. And they were like, can I just say, we've just seen your post. And I'm like, shall I take it down? And they were like, no, morale is so low in these new recruits right now. They're getting abused by people and they're not even on the job yet. So thank you. So I always go in there and go, look, you can't do this, 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 this and this. And this is, you know, your professionalism is what makes you a met police officer. But your humanity towards the people you are dealing with and your empathy is what will make you a good metropolitan police officer. And the only way that the police can change is through education and awareness. The fact that someone should know better doesn't mean that they do. And unless you get in there and go, this is my story. This is what I've been through. Now joke with me. Tell me what's funny. The head of Hampshire police once said to me that rape is the single worst um, thing that a person can survive. A single worst crime that a person can survive. That is that is what she said. And it's always stuck with me because that's totally true. It's a really profound thing. And I feel that all police forces need a huge, huge um, overhaul. They need radical change. And that's why I offer to all the the police and crime commissioners. And I've got a lot of different forces who have contacted me recently and they all seem to want to be very proactive and sort of changing those attitudes. And, you know, the thing is, if we don't tackle this sort of behaviour within forces, it's just going to end up spreading. And that's why I want to get in there at the new recruits before they're alienated into this. This is okay, But people need to know that unless we confront behaviours we're uncomfortable with then those behaviours continue away from us and that's when they can spread.
1: We only know what we know. We only exist how we exist because of how we've been brought up. And unfortunately, so many of us are brought up in situations that are not functional or healthy absolutely or, right and we forget that police officers that caregivers that parents you know we put so much trust as humans in our parents and we think our parents are going to protect us we think the police are going to protect us and we hope and they will often try their best but often their best is only a version of what they're capable of because of the tools that they have and I and I, I really feel that like listening to everything you've been through it's like, societally there's so much wrong that domestic violence is so prevalent that it 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 should be, you know, all the things you went through should have been the biggest alarm bells to, to you and to everybody, but you can see how it happens. C- can we ask about the people who did tell you to leave? Would you have listened? Could you have listened? What can, in, in your opinion, we do as friends or as people that care for, people that we worry are being abused... What would have been or could have been, if anything, helpful for you?
3: I think we all need to be aware. We need to recognise the signs. We need to make sure the people around us have that right signposting. But on the other side of it, somebody telling me to leave wasn't enough for me to leave. Hmm. Because actually, it's human nature to be quite embarrassed when you've made a huge fuck-up. And when you feel like you've thrown your entire life away, you've now got two kids. I mean, his conditioning was, nobody wants someone with two kids, damaged goods, you know? So... Anyway, fast forward to January, my mum came over because um, I was allowed to start seeing my mum now and again and because we went through Adia, I'd either seen my dad or my mum or neither. And we were making a joke, me and my mum, and I said something about watching the Amityville horror with Ryan Reynolds and I was like, he uh, he has his top off in a lot of it. And anyway, I started laughing and he punched me in the arm like 16 times, literally like bang, 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 bang and then kicked me in the shins and walked out the room. In front of your mother? Yeah. And I just stood down. My mum was like,
1: oh, my God.
3: And we went upstairs and I said, mum, I'm going to bag up some clothes
1: hmm.
3: and you need to take them with you and pretend they're clothes I don't want anymore. So that's, I, you know, I put a small bin bag of clothes and she took them with her. And then we'd made a plan for me to leave um, the week of like around the 20th of January uh, because she she didn't have time or the fuel to come and get me before then. So... It was just getting worse and worse and I was Googling domestic abuse and I found the domestic abuse helpline and I phoned the number and this was when he was picking up and delivering courtesy cars for a Ford garage uh, and he'd come home a minimum of five times a day. He'd just pull up on the drive, walk in the house, what are you doing? Not much, okay, and off he'd go again. Or you need to hoover, but I've hoovered twice today already, do it again, okay, you know. Or he'd turn up at the school gate, when I was picking the kids up, which was just at the end of the road, to make sure I wasn't talking to anybody, to make sure I was stood apart from everybody. And I phoned the National Domestic Abuse Helpline and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know whether I was wasting their time. I felt like I was crazy. I thought they might be like, right, we've pinpointed your house, we're going to send the police, blah, blah. You know, I didn't know. I really didn't know. And the woman that answered the phone saved my life. If I could be. Put in a room with that lady to say thank you to her. That's a new story and a half, I can tell you because Mm. the emotion I want to be able to go. These are a photo of my three children. I had two when I left. This is my wedding day to my best friend in the whole world. And that's because of you, because she validated me. She didn't make me feel stupid. She didn't lecture me. She just said, Natasha, tell me what's happening and do you think that's right? And I said, no, and I don't know how to leave, sort of thing. And she said, did you know you can book an appointment at a police station? And I was like, I didn't know that. So I phoned 101 and I made the report and my God, my heart has probably never gone so fast in my life. And I made an appointment for 10am the next day and I'd made up that I needed to go into town because of their council tax bills. So I got him, he went off to work, took my daughter to school, went and took my son to play school, turned around and he was behind me. What have you got your bag for? Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to the council office, remember? I'll drive you. I'm going that way. OK. So he drove me to the council office and I walked in. I don't know if either of you know Horsham at all, but there's like the council offices and then a big, big, huge park. And then at the top, there's another road. And uh, he went, oh, I'm going down there, blah, blah, blah. And I got out the car and he was sitting there and I walked in and I looked at the woman and she was like, can I help you? And I was like, um, I just need to wait here a minute. And she was like, OK. And I sat down and she sort of looked and made herself busy and he reversed out and I just jumped up and went, thank you, and ran. And I ran through the park and anybody that knows me knows I don't run unless somebody's chasing me or my favourite pair of shoes were on sale. And... Um, Ran through the park as fast as I could and at the top part of Horsham is a road called Hurst Road and it's basically only got a fire station, a police station, a law courts and a library on it. Like there was no reason for me to be there. And with him coming back with the car, he was either going to go past council offices or go down Hurst Road. And if he went down Hurst Road, I had no excuse for being there. And I remember running and getting into the police station, which was off the road and sitting down and just being like, Because I had every intention of going home after. I was there to ask for a non-molestation order, you know. So I went in with a police officer and I said, need a non-molestation order because he's this, this and this. And he's scrolling on the computer and he's looking. And he just said, Natasha, is there anything else? And I just, everything came out. And he stood up and he said, look, Natasha, I'm really sorry, but you've just taken this out of my hands. We need to arrest him and I need to go get your sexual offences officer. And I was like, oh my God. So in the meantime he'd managed to realise something was up and I'd had someone pick my kids up from school and nursery and take them to her house, yet as she was walking back to her house, he turned up and took them off her. The police couldn't find them. In the end, they found him walking down the road holding their hand. The police officer was like, we're going to walk them there and we're going to follow you in the police car or I'm going to nick you in front of your kids. Let's do this the right way, you know. So he walked them there. Um, I went off to the sexual um, like unit up at Crawley Hospital and had photo, intimate photos and God knows what else taken of me. And the biggest part of humanity that was shown to me that day was my phone was dying and I was getting a bit upset. And the nurse that was there on her lunch break went and got me a charging cable for my phone. And it just meant the world. Like it meant so much. Eventually, I got back to my kids. Um, We're in the car. We're going back to my mum's. I'm just completely broken. And my daughter goes, are we going to get our things from the car? Sweetheart, we don't have a car. No, daddy does. Daddy's parked it down the road opposite. So we had a driveway and there was no car. He'd stolen one of the courtesy cars from work. And he had parked it down the road opposite and filled it with their passports, a changing bag, a change of clothes and anything of value from the house, like my laptop and things like that. So the the, the Ford dealership were amazing. They had someone out and buckle, literally buckle the door with a crowbar of this brand new Ford um, to get my things out.
1: Had he been planning to take your kids and, and run? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think so. Well, he always told me if I ever left him that he would kill the kids and himself and make me live with the consequences. Um, he'd be like, I'd just dr- I'll just i drive the car into the Central Reservation at 90 on the motorway or I'll drive it into a lake. Um, I'm going to make you live with it. And um, got to my mum's and I remember sitting on the windowsill in a terraced house in Portsmouth and looking out the window and just being like, <laughs> I'm not going back. Not going back.
0: And where was he at this point? He'd been arrested, right? He was in
3: custody, yeah. And he faked he faked a heart attack, went to hospital. They found nothing wrong with him. He went back. He cleared the bank account out the following day. Um
1: was he released on bail to
3: do that? Yeah, yeah. He was leased, he was on bail three years. Wow. Three years? He breached bail well, actually he wasn't on bail three years. Um, so I got told not to go out alone. Two weeks after being there, my mum kicked me out because her um, I wouldn't give her partner my money for alcohol. in mind I am trying to save up to furnish my own home from scratch. Um, I ended up going into refuge. Uh, two kids who carry a bag sort of thing. Um, they went, you'll be here nine months. I was like, like, fuck. So the next day I went to the council and got on the housing register and a couple of days later I went back and I pulled my son's top up covered in bed bug bites and I was like how am I supposed to be a mother and raise my kids? Like it wasn't the refuges fault, but it was, they were trying to deal with it, but it was at, the, at that time, it was something else that I had in my corner.
0: Yeah.
3: And um, I got a house, I got a flat. I had to wait another two weeks because they put in a new kitchen and that. And I moved into my flat uh, all the time. He is emailing my friends and family, texting them, um he's putting posts on and pictures of me saying he loves me he's bought me a new wedding ring um yeah all sorts of stuff he was making reports to the police and, and to social services that i was hitting the kids and it was just ridiculous um
1: and this was all while he he had the conviction hang you know coming yeah yeah whilst
3: we were waiting for the investigation yeah um and his bail conditions were no direct or indirect contact save for a solicitor for the benefit of the children. Yeah. So that dragged on. Then I met through a friend of mine, uh, this guy who lived in Western Supermare, literally by chance, met each other online and got chatting. He'd just left his wife and I was going to see my friend in Devon. And he went, well, I've always said I'll buy you pizza. I stopped by and I got off the train in World Train Station and he was stood in the middle of the platform and it was literally, it could have been like love actually. And I'm not like a chick flick girl. I'm not a romantic girl. I got off, looked at him and my heart went, there you are. and when I got on the train the following day he'd made up his spare room for me and everything and I was like honey seriously it's all good I'm not sleeping in the spare room (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, and we took the kids to the zoo and had a great time and I remember Darcy walked in and we were cuddling on the sofa and she walked in and just went and I was like what are you laughing at and I realised that my daughter had never seen genuine affection Never see other than you know like my affection to her or her brother mm-hmm. and um we've been together five weeks and I had a minor stroke um so we'd been to the zoo and um I came back took dinner plate to the kitchen handed it to him and just went Ugh. and the whole this side of my face dropped and my hand went and so 10 months I couldn't feel my hand or my face properly for um I was laid in the hospital bed and I was like fuck <laughs> Clark, I'm 26. This has happened. I've met a guy five weeks. He's going back to Western Supermare. I was in Portsmouth. Um, He's supposed to have work tomorrow. I'm not going to see him again. So anyway, it was a bit awkward. And he was just like, "Um, I just need to nip outside and make a phone call. And I was like, I don't know if he's even going to come back from that. I can't even speak. So off he went and he came back and he sat down and he said, "Um, I've told my boss I'm taking all my leave." And he sat there and he hand fed me because they put a cannula in my left hand, which at the time I was four stone lighter. I was literally like a skeleton from stress. So I couldn't move this hand properly and I couldn't use this hand. So he literally fed me and he took me home and he said, "Um, I'm going for a better paid job. It's like eight grand a year more, um, but it's up in like Nottingham. So, okay, Uh, he said, if I get the job, will you come with me? will you move and I said well yeah but I've got to be here six months to get a council transfer and he went no let's just do it he was like I've worked out if I get a 12,000 pound loan I can pay off my debts we can refurnish the kids bedroom um because they were sharing he was like we can get them you know proper beds in their own space and and let's just do it so we sat the kids down we said do you want to move it you know would you be okay with that no Darcy like yeah you know (laughs) so three months after we met we moved to Nottingham and yeah. A lot of people were like, oh, and I was like, when you've done it wrong, it feels good to do it right. I had a lot of time before I left to work on myself and realised that there was nothing wrong with me. I didn't need anybody and I didn't plan to have anybody. But Ben became my rock and I became his rock. So that's when the allegations of him being a sex offender began. Pot kettle. So, your ex was
1: accusing, he found
3: out about you and Ben and and started accusing Ben of things. Yeah. One day we had the police knock on the door at our house in Nottingham, bearing in mind my ex didn't know where we were. Can I help? Yeah, we've tracked your car down through the DVLA. You've been seen punching your daughter in the face.
0: Oh my God.
3: He'd taken our number plate when we'd attended family court. He'd taken our number plate to record, to try and track our address down and stuff. He, first of all, he wanted full custody because I was crazy. But if I came home, it was okay. He was writing in the court documents, family court documents, like she is my one true love and all sorts of crap like that. Uh, In the middle of this, I'm getting divorced from him. Um, I had a baby with Ben and then um, we had to tell all the local schools if anybody phoned and asked for their names. Um, The school had a picture of him up in case they ever saw him around the perimeter and all sorts of things like that. Then I had a woman in Scotland start stalking me online and saying she was going to kick my baby out of me. She was going to pour a, a boiling kettle of water over my face. She had my address. Um, the police took five weeks to investigate that. And um, that went to court up in Scotland. Um, she had a history of that sort of thing. And it, what really frustrated me is that there was never any legal recourse against my ex for it. So again, we're on bail. We're waiting for a charge decision. He's giving her photos, information and letters of mine via text. And she's up in Scotland posting the stuff. What is his relation to this woman? He just met her online.
1: So basically, you left this situation and you're trying to rebuild your life. Mm -hmm. And because presumably of the delays in the court system or however this was the
3: investigation. They had 30,000 WhatsApp messages to read through.
1: Wow. And so meanwhile, while the investigation is ongoing, he's free to continue harassing you. Oh, yeah.
3: He he abused me remotely. Um, That's extraordinary. He would post pictures of me, videos of me, messages about me, talking to me. And the answer was come off social media. No, I have not done anything wrong. I'm not hiding. Deal with him. You know, Um, but it did. It made me drop. Obviously, I'm battling my health i'm battling family court i'm battling criminal court i'm having phone calls from the police asking intimate questions all the time and anyway it got to a point where they went right it's going to court
0: okay and how, how long after you making the report for this to happen three years
3: two months wow it's a three long years two months years was
0: the
1: date time. we went to court wow. on the 5th of
3: march 2018
1: that can't i mean i i, I just i that that's crazy Three years. But
3: from the women I talk to, it's not
1: unique. I guess that's what my question is. That's incredibly concerning, given that not only did he continually abuse you throughout this time, but he had the potential to go and do it to another woman and another woman. He Mm. did. He did. He He did. did.
3: Yeah, he had a woman living with him who had four kids. And the police went and said, look, you know, he is on bail for rape. He's now been charged four counts Mm. and one of sexual assault by penetration. And on top of that, he's a child sex offender and she went no his ex is just really good at manipulating people it's all a lie but yeah so in that time you know I'd got married I'd had a baby I'd had a minor stroke and all this stuff had gone on with him harassing us we'd been dragged through family court it got put on hold until the outcome of the trial so he filed a fresh family court claim I got dragged in when my son was two weeks old and stood there I said well he's on bail and he puts his hand up no I'm not and I was like, oh, "You're such a liar," because he's—he was going on about how I was being done for benefit fraud, and I was being locked up, and and everybody had turned to you know. Every time there was this big allegation, and um, the judge went, "Look, can you read? This says not until the outcome go." So anyway, we left. And I phoned a police officer. I said, "By the way," he went, "Yeah, he's not on bail."
0: I can't believe it. I'm incredulous. Can't believe what? it.
3: I went, "Sorry, I've just had a baby two fucking weeks ago, and I'm in court." And you've let him sit in the same room with me and he's not on bail. Yeah, it slipped. I was off on leave and whoever it was that was renewing the bail forgot to do it. When they went 48 hours later to the custody sergeant, the custody sergeant said, well, he hasn't done anything in this time, has he? So don't worry about it. So that was terrifying. That was terrifying. And people were like, well, it makes no difference. He doesn't know where you are. And I'm like, you don't understand. I mean, it was never enforced anyway, let's be honest. But um, So fast forward to court, I gave video evidence from Nottingham. Um, because my health wasn't deemed well enough by my doctor to go down to Brighton to do it. Uh, I was cross-examined for six and a half hours. Uh, Prosecution didn't wish to question me afterwards. They were like, no, you've pretty much nailed it. It's all good. Um, During the cross-examination, I got asked whether or not being naked in bed is an indication of consent by the defence.
0: Oh, my God, you're kidding. You're actually kidding.
3: I tore him off a strip so much, he's probably still raw now
1: good (laughs) Good um like bitch bitch please
3: you know i really
1: i know you're not supposed to say this because they're doing their jobs but i'm like being a defense lawyer in a case like this yeah how do you do it how do you do it how can you justify questions like that
3: yeah uh what else did he say um that i phoned the national domestic abuse helpline and didn't say i was being raped i was like i literally just went and your point is uh that i that I'm a bit promiscuous. I was. I had quite a few sexual relationships beforehand.
1: Terrifying. It's just like such indoctrinated victim they blaming. They also
3: tried to start questioning me on sex with Ben because I had another child. So clearly I was OK having sex and not damaged. And that I hadn't had counselling. That was the other one. We haven't had any counselling or any professional help. I went, I'm not a rapist. Why would I need professional help? And he just went uh, and the judge went, move on and I was like ah <laughs> dick um but yeah you know you. like genuinely I'm like I'm so over this shit I'm not having this and then yeah and then they went through the trial uh half the half of my witnesses including my police officer got the flu and I don't mean a cold I mean like 40 degree temperature flu. I was so ill um so it wasn't my police officer who gave evidence it was his superior who covered my case when he was off and she was brilliant um and I remember going to him. Why four counts of rape and one of sexual assault by penetration? And he went because rape percentage is seventeen percent conviction, but sexual assault is seventy three. So the idea was, the idea was that if he got off rape, at least we'd nail him on something.
0: C- can you just explain to me what the difference is? between rape and sexual assault by penetration at least in the eyes of the law of the court
3: because by very definition that sounds like rape yeah I know it does Sexual assault by penetration is with a finger or any other object, excluding the right, penis. Right, got you. Okay, okay. Because when you give a statement for rape, they are extremely graphic. They want to know what finger, how long did it go all the way in? Did it not go all the way in? You know, it's. Right. Um, I would frequently wake up and he'd be having sex with me. He'd be touching me. He would, you know, um, you know, there were times he asked me to pretend that I didn't want it, so put up a bit more of a fight. You know.
0: Oh God.
3: So, yeah, uh, have me dress up as a schoolgirl, which now makes sense. So what was he ultimately convicted of then? So he was found guilty of three counts of rape and one of sexual assault by penetration. So there were there were multiple. So the first count was um, anything before my son was born. The okay. second count was from the night my son was born and he ripped my stitches up until when I left. So that covered period of three years and then there were two individual counts in the week before I left because obviously they were so recent that I could give good descriptions of what had happened the reason that the one before my son was born was found to not be able to be implemented was um that I couldn't give a start date I didn't know I didn't know at what point I was starting to be coerced into having sex made to feel like I should um because I couldn't remember probably happened right from the beginning you know so um I understand that and that was fine um I gave evidence on International Women's Day um which still is why International Women's Day means so much to me Mm. um and it always will do um I got up that day and was like yeah if this is a sign this is a sign I'm gonna kick ass which I did um And then he was sentenced on May the 4th. So everybody was doing the May the 4th be with you thing. Um, So I'll (laughs) never forget that date either. Mm -hmm. And he was sentenced to 12 years custodial, three on licence and lifetime on the sex offenders register. He went off to prison. Um, He did appeal after appeal, which got rejected. My husband wanted to adopt the kids um, because they see him as their dad. He's only ever paid for them. He's looked after them like he's their dad. They've not seen my ex since the day we left and they don't want to. You know it's a difficult process. Um, and then in July, I think it was July last year, we had a hearing. We hadn't told the kids because so many times my twelve year old had had just these false starts that broke her heart. um and anyway, my mother in- law had taken them out after school. We had this hearing, and the judge took until half past six at night. She basically said, "I'm dispensing with your um, with your your permission. We don't need your permission for this adoption." Mr Saunders has adopted the children And you have nothing to do with them And it was just the most My husband sobbed like a baby Six foot two, rugby player Big guy, broke his heart And the kids came home And we gave them a piece of paper each And on the piece of paper It just had Darcy Saunders and Thomas Saunders And they were both like Okay And Darcy went You've changed our names And Ben was like No, like You know We've um, Yeah, it's all done So (laughs) So, so yeah. they got their happy ending, so they got their happy ending, and in the middle of all that i uh I did my work for refuge and um I remember the head of Derbyshire Mapper telling me that if I stopped doing that, my ex would probably stop kicking off in prison, and I was like, yeah you you won't you no, can't be
1: silent now,
3: no, absolutely not, never, never will I be silenced again and I remember very kindly the the chairwoman of Refuge sent me an email when we changed the law saying, oh, you know, it's a once in a lifetime achievement changing the law. And I was like, no, I'm 32. I'm just getting started.
0: Wow. There's so much
3: more ahead of me. <laughs> I'm, you know, I used to be I used to be afraid of fire. Now I am the fire. <laughs> you know, I'm not having that's why my logo is a phoenix, because. I have risen from the ashes I am capable I am beautiful I am going to encourage my daughter to grow up and love the world in whatever way she wants to my boys will grow up and be respectful because their dad is a real man and I'm surrounded by support and love and yeah I feel like I make positive change in society and without refuge and the National Domestic Abuse Helpline I wouldn't be here now I'd be dead. if if I wasn't still with him I'd be dead and you know that's what we always need to remember is that two women a week are losing their lives and Mm. some women may never know my name but they may benefit from the law changes or the awareness I raise and that's okay because when you receive an Instagram message and they're like just want to let you know that I've left because of you or your words helped me or you know um i've I've been through something different, you know, and but I find your words and and the way that you've overcome difficult times really inspiring, although it can be overwhelming, it's also the most amazing feeling because I don't do what I do for me, I do it for other people, and so to know that there are people out there who actually do benefit from it is amazing.
0: and can i can I ask you I mean, what strikes me about your story is just how hard it is to leave. It's really, it's nowhere near as simple as just leave. It's like for the plethora of reasons that you, that you explained, you know, Mm -hmm. including threatening to kill your kids, you know, which is, I imagine, the most terrifying of them all. So, you know, firsthand just how difficult it is for women to leave. Mm -hmm. It's, Yeah. yeah. What advice would you give someone who is you know is struggling with this is trying to to come to terms with what they should do and sort of just stuck between a rock and a hard place what advice would you would you give them if you could talk to
3: them so money can be earned again I lost everything but I lost nothing I lost everything material but I gained everything that mattered I have my freedom. I have happiness. I have love. And it's not just the love of my husband. Like my husband is my best friend. However, if he left tomorrow, I would be heartbroken, but my God, I'd survive. I'd get over it. And I'd be all good because I can do it. You know, we're together because we complement each other. We support each other, you know, our personalities support each other in what we do. And he is my biggest fan. And so in that sense, you don't need anybody material things can be re-earned it's the hardest step you'll ever take but it's the first step to the rest of your life which sounds like such a cliche because I say it so much but it's so true And, and and with
0: your experience now and what you know I mean since leaving and you know you know all the work you do what would you advise the first step to be who to reach out
3: to what exactly to do phone the national domestic abuse helpline They're there for you 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. They have an online chat feature. Refuge's website has some amazing information, even if it's somebody you know that you think is going through abuse. There are some fantastic tips on there. Um, On my own website, I have what I think might be the world's first national domestic abuse directory, which has literally numbers for All different things for different countries, you know, and so I have like my my slogan, like my my like little tagline is survive, rise, thrive, because you survive what you go through, you rise above it, and then you thrive. And you make no apologies for it, you know. You've been
1: through so much and to hear where you are now is just extraordinary. Like to hear, you know, your worth and, you know, to to hear you at the beginning of this interview to you at the end of the interview, it's like, you sound like just two different women and it's the most remarkable thing. And I just, that is, it's so empowering and exciting because it's hope, isn't it? And yeah. I wonder if there was something that you could say one thing, and this is probably an impossible question, but if there was one thing you could say to the you of seven years ago, mm. what would it be?
3: Uh, nothing is impossible. The word itself says I'm possible. Love it. It is the word, you know, nothing is impossible. So, and but I think it's also really important to point out to women that if you don't want to take on the world, if you leave and you don't want to share your story, or you don't want to become an MP, for example, and you just want to get on with your life, that's amazing too. And that makes you really special too, because you have a right to live in the way that you want to live. And living in fear is no way to live.
1: All of Natasha's information is in the show notes if you would like to find out more about the work that she does. Now, we would like to introduce Cherie Blair. Thank you so much, Cherie, for coming and talking to us today. So we wanted to ask you as a lawyer... Uh, how, how the gaps in the legal system uh, that mean that conviction rates of violence against women are so low, and, and how frustrating that
4: must be for you. It's strange, really, because 45 years ago, I started as a barrister, and the Domestic Violence and Matrimonial Proceedings Act had just come into force. And in, it was considered an easy thing to do. To to cut your teeth as an advocate to do domestic violence now of course actually it's it's not that easy um and uh, it's a very serious issue but i think it was part of the attitude at the time of society at large to what was really regarded as just a domestic so i think the first thing i have to say is it's got so much better and that we, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact about. that how much progress has been made. And I think that's really, really important. All these people, the the police, the the authority, the local authorities, employers, the public, understand a lot more just how um, soul destroying and insidious violence against women is. And of course we've also developed an understanding that it's not just about bruises but it's also about the mental uh, abuse and the belittling and the undermining of somebody's confidence and the the confining them to a narrow world where the abuser's word is king. So um, we actually have made progress but yes we still uh, have a way to go. I think particularly we have a way to go when it comes to the question of conviction rates. When you look at issues, for example, like rape, and you look at the conviction rates, which actually are getting worse, if anything, either you would conclude that there's a lot of women telling fantasy stories out here, I doubt it, or you conclude that somehow or other the system isn't operating uh, in a way that respects the rights of victims.
0: For that system to improve, what would have to be put in place? What do you think are the most, the most, the most vital things that need to be put in place for that system to um, improve and for victims to be, um, you know, taken more seriously and for more convictions to be made?
4: We have to do something to make things better. Why? Because the public trust in law enforcement is incredibly low, and that leads to a vicious circle. Women think there's no point in reporting. I'm not going to be taken seriously. Or they think, even if I am taken seriously, and to be fair, many, many police forces have specially trained uh, police officers who know exactly what to do, but then they feel that, you know, I get to court. And, and then the whole court experience is, is, is like being assaulted again. And, and so that, again, discourages women from, from coming forward.
1: It's inevitable that people do feel down, downhearted because even if you do, you know, you make the call and you do escape and you do feel, you know, in a position and, and it takes so much strength to, to to get out of a situation of domestic violence... And you you touched on it when when you do finally get to court you know you feel like you're being assaulted again because the cross examination and and you know and people getting off on technicalities you know talking to Natasha before about um it's you know it's like they use different language because you're more likely to get off on a rape claim and and that just it's it's so low and and I and I wonder you know is this something that we trust that that you know refuge and brilliant initiatives are fighting for us or is there something that we can do Really, to challenge the the legal, you know, the fact that conviction rates are so low.
4: Well, I mean, I think this is always a difficult issue, I and mean, you know, when you talk about human rights, you're never talking about absolute black and white issues, because you know, the right of my right of freedom of expression um, can comes up against your right to a private and family life, or in this case, um, my right to be protected from violence, comes up against your right to a fair trial. And when you live in a system, rightly so, that assumes that a person is innocent until proven guilty, and when you're talking about an area where sometimes it's one person's word against another, no one else is there, you know, then it, it does become difficult. Of course it becomes... Uh, difficult uh, because you do. everyone has a right to be able to defend themselves and put their case in a, in a court of law. Now, we have developed ways to ensure that that right isn't abused. Uh, the, the judges these days who try these cases have to have a special ticket, as we call it, a special training to ensure um, that they understand the issues that are involved. So you're not just getting someone who doesn't really know the social context and, and, and the reasons behind this, that they're all trained, all of these things make things easier. But of course, you know, the jury system relies on 12 members of the public. And, and you can train the judges and you can train the barristers and, and, and you can put in checks and balances, but at the end of the day, you, know, you get a random selection of members of the public. and They can sometimes have contrary views. Uh, so, you know, going through going through the justice system, going through a trial by a jury, I mean, obviously, you can never be certain of the outcome. And generally speaking, if you are certain of the outcome because someone's guilty, it's because they pleaded guilty. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not, you have to be realistic here. We, we can't simply overwrite all the rights of the, of the accused and say if someone accuses someone of, uh, rape, for example, that that absolutely means that the person is guilty, because that that's, that that undermines
0: that basic principle. So, so, but but you would say that there needs to be more education within the judicial system. Well, I do. not
4: No, I, well, look, you will all, you, there's always going to be someone who's going to say something stupid. Uh, there's less of that than there used to be. You know, I, I I myself have sat as a judge, and I know that the judges go through extensive training and they don't just go through the training at the beginning when they're appointed as judges you have to go through the training continuously throughout your career so um you know someone is not just put onto the the bench and then left to go their own way so you must you mustn't think that
0: so it's something as i'm I'm sure that you know uh that we contend a lot with in this space and when we have these conversations online um around uh male violence and domestic abuse is uh men tripping over themselves to say not all men <laughs> um what do you have to say to to those men and to those people who try and and, and push forward that conversation
4: well, of course, look, I'm a mother of three sons and only one daughter. And of course, not all men are abusers, but every single man can be part of the change. And men do have a role to play in ending violence against women and domestic abuse. Of course, they can. You know, sometimes you find all, all the time when remarks are made in a meeting or some or people say something inappropriate, and afterwards people say to you, Oh, i am just come, may come up to you men and say, oh, I'm really sorry, I thought that was inappropriate, you know, and thank you for speaking out, you know, and you you have to say to them, you know, if, if only the women speak out, <laughs> and then, then the, the men who are making these remarks just say, oh, well, moaning minis, they're just doing it again. You know, if men actually step up and say, this is unacceptable, you know, you're making me uncomfortable, then maybe some of these men who have these these ideas might pay, pay more attention. So yes, not all men do, of course not. Most men don't do these things, but every man can speak out against it and can call it out when he sees it. And I do feel, you know, that men are our allies in this. You know, and it cannot, it cannot be the kind of debate that treats all men with suspicion or thinks they have nothing to contribute. Uh, they have a lot to contribute to it, and uh, male allies who speak out in this are, are very, very important.
1: Yeah, we need we need them. We need. Yeah, it can't be men versus women because we need them. And finally, I suppose
4: we also need to remember that we need to do more to see. You know, why do men act like this way? What can we do to help? Mm. Uh, you know, what scheme are we putting money into schemes that actually work that help? men who want to stop lashing out um, learn to control themselves to control their emotions to control whatever it is that leads them to do these things
1: it's to break the cycle again speaking to natasha before you know the, the the thing that was really hard to hear is it's like you just see that the reason this her situation perhaps was uh I I don't want to say accepted, but she had experienced a dysfunctional childhood and so too had her abuser. And I think, you know, it does just become, it becomes a cycle. And like you say, like, you know, we need to go back to look at why and, and that's how we help, I suppose, as well.
0: Well, yeah, thank you so, so much, Sherry, for joining us. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. And really, we really commend the work that you do and the tremendous amount of people that you help. It's super important. And yeah, thank you so much for being here today.
4: It's thank you for for taking this issue up and taking it so seriously and for the people who are listening for caring enough to stay to the end. You know, we are making progress and things are getting better and we should never forget that. Um, It's just, as always, we learn from the mistakes of the past and we need to carry on learning.
0: Next up we're hearing from Ruth Davidson who is the CEO of Refuge. It was really insightful to hear from Ruth about the inner workings of the charity and about the work they do not just in helping victims flee situations of domestic violence but also on a wider level to help end misogyny and any kind of violence against women.
1: Thank you so much for talking to us and being part of this episode and and working with us to create it. You're
2: really welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: We've spoken to Cherie today about the legal side of things. We've spoken to Natasha, who's an extraordinary. Like I just, I'm still in awe of her, and and we're so excited to, to to talk to you now. Just, I think what this episode, like, certainly for me has been is a really good opportunity to see um the issues that you guys are tackling from like very different perspectives you know it's really hard work that you do but it's so important and it's so like multi uh faceted or you know like there's just so much to it and there's so much work to be done and we're really happy that we get the chance to talk to you now about what exactly it is and and the the culture as you see it and the changes over the last couple of years because lockdown. Has, has changed things and and to talk to you more about the work that you do. But I thought just before we did that, could we ask like about how you came to be involved with Refuge and, and your position there and what what you do?
2: Yeah, so I'm Refuge's chief executive. I've been in post for almost a year. So you paid tribute to the amazing work that Refuge does and, and I stand with you really. I can't take credit for the absolutely phenomenal work that my frontline colleagues did through lockdown. I cannot imagine how difficult it was for them. For me, it's a massive privilege to come in and lead this organisation now as we emerge from lockdown to try and respond to the demand that has grown and is stabilised, but a new unprecedented level of need. Um, and to try and also lean into the growth and empathy that we've seen and the growth in awareness and understanding. I think during lockdown, we were all closed behind our doors, weren't we? Maybe for the first time for many of us that our freedom was curtailed. And the ability to empathise with people who are trapped not just behind a closed door, but trapped behind a closed door with someone who's abusing them, I think really grew. So I came to Refuge probably at the height of awareness of domestic abuse in in the public domain. Having worked for years in philanthropy, I was running Comic Relief, the big fundraising charity, um, and we have been long-standing funders of programmes to tackle violence against women and girls. Um, So for me to come from Comic Relief, to actually join the front line and to be part of leading an organisation that is right there every day, saving lives, I I don't exaggerate it, saving women's lives, saving children's lives, Um, yeah, it's a huge privilege really
1: just to touch on on the on the lockdown thing if we could quickly before um we talked to you about sort of refuge in general you you talk about like the spike that that happened and 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 it does sound you are saying there that it has like leveled out um that must be a massive
2: relief it's leveled out yes but it's leveled out a level of demand and need that we have never seen before
4: more complex
2: cases far more complex cases and the volume of cases is higher than it ever has been so During lockdown, during the first lockdown, which was April 2020 to February 2021, our calls and contacts to the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, leapt, went up from an average of around 8,000 a month to around 13,000 a month. So that was the leap that we saw. And we've now stabilised at slightly lower than the peak of 13,000, but stabilised at a new normal um, that we've never seen before. So we know that 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 is the surge in demand that that came during lockdown and we're not expecting to see that decrease anytime soon with the ongoing pressures of the mental health epidemic that we're all in and, and all the other pressures that built during lockdown. So, yeah, what I do know is that we've never seen demand like this. It's not just Refuge, it's all of the frontline providers. Refuge runs the UK's National Domestic Abuse Helpline. And that really is the gateway into most of the frontline services across the country. So if you need a refuge space, if you want referral into a specialist service, um, it's often the first place a woman will come. It's the place she'll call. So our monitoring of the demand of that helpline shows you how levels of need have leapt across the country.
0: Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about what you do sort of day in, day out as the CEO? What does that what does that kind of look like for you?
2: Yeah, it's a strange job. I say I'm on the front line and I'm running a big front line response charity. But of course, I work like everyone else from home via Zoom, mm-hmm. just like this. Um, I spend a lot of my time with staff trying to understand how can we do things better. Um, Refuge really tries to take its strategic direction from the women and children that we're supporting. And my frontline workers are those who engage with people and talk to people day to day, trying to help them and empower them to rebuild their lives. So I spend a lot of time with my staff, understanding what's happening. How is abuse changing? How do we need to change as refuge to keep one step ahead of perpetrators? And then I try and spend a lot of my time doing things like this, talking to the media, talking to politicians, trying to continue to raise awareness and deepen understanding. The Domestic Abuse Act passed in April and put into law the fact that Forms of abuse have perhaps not been historically understood, like economic abuse, coercive control. That's now all illegal as well. But still many, many people don't recognise what those forms of abuse really mean. Even women who are experiencing it may not have the right terminology. And it takes a long time to accept what's happening to you. So the more I can do to keep helping move people's understanding forward and keep this topic and the topic of violence against women and girls in in the mainstream, the more important because fundamentally we need legislative change and we need change in societal attitudes if we're going to eradicate domestic abuse.
1: Well,
0: what, what I actually wanted to ask is sort of thinking about what you do and what you talk about every day and the statistics you're faced with every day and the stories, like I imagine that what you do is brilliant but also extremely difficult and I I'm kind of thinking that you often have to walk the line between like dejection and optimism and you know there's a very I I imagine there's like a really stark contrast of that that you have to kind of contend with and I wondered how with the work you do how you balance the two?
2: Yeah it's a good question lots of my friends and family when they see me say are you liking the new job? Um and actually, I don't know how you can say you're liking a job like this. Every charity wants to work its way out of existence. Every charity wants to not need to exist mm. because the social cause it's there to address has been eradicated. Mm. This job particularly, I find it unbelievably rewarding. That's probably how to respond. It is very, very um, yeah, immediate. The risk, the danger, um, the... The deaths, um, the the high demand on my on my frontline colleagues, I think, is much more real um, than in many of the jobs I've had in the past. That have been equally brilliant jobs, making a difference in the world, but this feels very very proximate. And obviously, I'm female myself, um, and understanding that to one extent or another, misogyny, patriarchy, and violence against women and girls. Um, It affects all of us, actually, Um, even those of us who are really lucky. I don't know a single woman who hasn't had to make a decision about which path shall I walk home at night because it feels the safest, or do I really want to buy that flat or move into that area of London or wherever you are in the country because will I feel safe at night? Am I really going to be able to make these decisions about my career? So I think domestic abuse is at the very extreme end. Obviously, sexual violence, domestic abuse, domestic homicide... This is the very, very extreme end that Refuge is dealing with. But these issues affect all of us day to day. And I think, yeah, to tread the line between dejection and optimism, I think you have to feel, I'm making a difference, I'm making a choice here to stand up against this. I'm doing it with almost 400 colleagues who work with me at Refuge and the rest of an amazing empowered sector who is saying enough is enough you know this is our daily experience all of us and we are 50% of the population of this country Um, it's not it's not okay one in four women um, will experience domestic abuse in their lifetime and that is not a statistic that in this country in this day and age we should be tolerating and yet it's barely spoken about.
1: And I think you're right like domestic abuse is one end of the scale but you're also so right in the daily misogyny that we face and it's it's a um you know this has been a massive theme of the whole episode we've talked today it's like it's um it's so expected and it's so societally normalized that women are treated kind of a second-class citizens to an extent we are the butt of jokes we are threatened, we're sexualised, we're objectified, we're, we're terrified. But I wondered if you could explain to us why making misogyny a hate crime or why talking about it in these terms is important and why we, why we need to recognise misogyny as something so much more serious
2: than what it is. I think you are right that it is really easy to dismiss banter and locker room jokes and boys' you know, slightly inappropriate humour. We can write that off because we've tolerated it for so long. We as women can write it off and because it is our everyday experience. But that's the very reason that it's so pervasive and so dangerous, I think. We saw in the fairly recent IOPC report into the police force some of the horrendous jokes that were absolutely Mm -hmm. normalised within the police. And it's those kinds of jokes and the fact that they're unchecked and have been unchecked for decades that can lead to men, abusive men, thinking that, their negative views of women are completely reasonable. And acting on this hatred, perpetrators can then justify their own violence. And that is a leap that far too many men make. Two women every week are murdered, are killed um, as a result of domestic abuse. So this is not one bad apple here or there. This is a really significant societal problem. And I think as Refuge, we do believe very strongly that if we recognise misogyny as a hate crime in the way that we recognise other um, hate crimes against particular protected groups of people with protected characteristics, that could actually transform how those crimes are treated. It could, recognising the motivation, could not just enable tougher sentencing and hold perpetrators to account, which is obviously critical, but it can also identify trends and it can encourage people to come forward. There was a really successful pilot in Nottinghamshire Police Force who took the initiative on this um, and they recognised that when they started treating uh, misogynistic crimes and recording them as such, they saw a 25% increase in reporting of those crimes. So it changed attitudes. It increased confidence amongst women to come forward. They trained all of their police officers so that they could um, respond with empathy. Therefore, more people felt confident to come forward. They were actually able to lift the number of prosecutions. And I think just looking at sentencing is not enough because so few women ever report. um, Less than one in five of the women that we work with will ever go to the police because their view of what will happen to them is just so negative. And when the former Commissioner Crester Dick says to us, you know, if you're worried when you get stopped by a serving police officer that he may be about to rape or murder you, then flag down a bus. Um, you know, it's not really a massive surprise that we don't feel confident going to the police when what they might say is, Well, what were you wearing? or how much had you had to drink or why on earth would you think that walking alone at eleven PM at night down that street would be acceptable? We can feel that we're criminalised because these attitudes are just normal in society that we have to risk assess everything we do. Mm.
0: What you were saying about, you know, it's not just a few bad apples and it isn't, is it? And and there is got to be something behind it so that I think it's like imperative that we talk about how the normalisation of behaviours towards women like, you know, upskirting or, you know, just sexist jokes, catcalling, unsolicited dick pics, you know um all of those things are connected to male power and male privilege and these things can be an, an accumulation and can almost be like a, a a gateway right a gateway to more violent behaviors and I think it's it's really like important that we like we press upon this point because it, people say oh it's just it's just a, a psychopath here and a psychopath there but actually the, the the misogyny like the vast amount of misogyny that that we are entrenched in is really contributing towards creating such violent behaviors
2: that that then exist at the other end of the spectrum, right? I completely agree with you. I, I don't want to give any perpetrator any kind of excuse or, you know, any mitigation for their behavior. Perpetrators choose to perpetrate abuse and they are responsible for their actions. But you are right when we're living in a society where there's this low level misogyny all the time, where it doesn't surprise you at all. If I tell you You know, if you compare what would happen if you were attacked when you were walking home wearing a short skirt late at night after having had a few drinks, um, as opposed to if you identified Mm. a suspicious looking package when you were on a bus, you know, there would be no doubt or questions around you know what part did you play in that package what were you wearing at the time um oh my God, it's you know such a why were you comparison. even on the bus at that time of night what were you thinking what would happen is they'd immediately take you off the bus seal the bus get everyone away from it bring in specialist mm. teams take it very seriously if you go and report that you've been raped or harassed on your way home the questions that you get are fundamentally different and that kind of victim blaming mm. which is a step on you're right it's a pattern of behavior it's a step on from harmless locker room banter and Domestic abuse is never a joke. Violence against women and girls is never a joke. But if we tolerate the beginning of it, we normalise the fact that crimes against us are not treated as um, that terrorist crime example was. And we therefore Mm. allow the kind of violent misogyny and hatred that we see. It's absolutely not Mm. a few bad apples. We all have to take responsibility, women and men, for changing our society.
1: Talking to Cherie before, she said, I hadn't heard it really before described like this, but how often another, uh, to, to, to press charges and to have to go through court can feel like another assault. And because it, it does feel so difficult, it doesn't feel like the system really does do, it actually feels like the system is set up against women. And of course we talked to her about the importance of a fair trial and, and it's so complicated and that's why you know lawyers do it and not people like me because I don't understand the law at all. But it does feel from the outside so frustrating because at every level, from from banter to misconceptions to prejudices about being a girl, you know, even a schoolgirl, it starts so young. And then you get older and and like you say, the victim-blaming way that we speak, and then God forbid something happens. The police, and this is not all police officers but you know to speak in in light of the recent news about what's happened with the with the with the jokes emerging from the metropolitan police you know you can see why we lose faith faith in in the system and then you go to the government you know you go to the courts and and then your the conviction rates for for rape even are so low and you know talking to natasha about that was just so so hard and this is an impossible question for you to ask because of course it underpins all of the work that you do with refuge but How do you feel about, I'm loathe to use the word, but I'm going to say it anyway, reluctance from authority that is supposedly in place to protect us, um, to to do more? Because it does feel like we are in acute danger as women and it is so frustrating to hear that misogyny isn't going to be made a hate crime. It is so frustrating to hear that it's a few bad apples. You know, this rhetoric is so hard to hear. You know, I I wonder how you feel about that in
2: general. Yeah, I think... um on a good day, feel angry and it motivates me um, there are days when it feels overwhelming actually you're right because you can't disassociate from this can you we're all living this every day mm. not right on the extreme you're right I'm very lucky I'm in you know a happy healthy relationship I have a good job in a great organization in many ways I'm very privileged and protected but all of us as women understand this instinctively and it's not just the police you're right and it's not just um, in workplaces it's not just a football problem it's everywhere you know it's online we're recording this online our recent research on tech abuse showed that one in three women experience online abuse and amongst younger women that's two in three so two-thirds of all women are experiencing online abuse when they go onto any social media platform and believe me getting the social tech giants to do anything about that is almost impossible so doors are just closed hard in your face when you're trying to raise problems that are affecting a vast vast number of people we are half the population, and I understand that people are saying, oh, well, recognising misogyny as a hate crime, it's just such a big problem, it will become unwieldy. Since when is a problem being too serious and too large and affecting too many people, a reason not to deal with it? So I, I am really disappointed, actually. On the 21st of February, we heard that the Home Secretary has publicly said that she will not support Baroness New amendment amendment, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which would recognise misogyny as a hate crime. And I think that is disappointed. We have a very good and constructive relationship with Home Secretary. She's repeatedly spoken privately and publicly about her commitment to tackling violence against women and girls. So for me, it is frustrating and very disappointing that she is not going to take that step. She doesn't appear to consider crimes such as street crime against women and girls and online harassment as serious enough to be recognised as hate crimes. When just as you have said, they're part of a pattern of abuse. Abuse is not a one-off incident. And maybe I should give you a different example. So I was speaking to uh, a woman about a week ago. Um, she went on an online date with someone. Didn't you know They didn't click. She didn't want to see him again. That should be fine. You should be able to walk away from that. Um, since that time, he has somehow tracked her online, identified where she lived. She'd obviously been quite careful what she shared and met him in a public place. And he's persistently sending her photos on Instagram of her front door so that she knows he's at her front door. There's absolutely no reason for him to be doing this other than to terrify her. And yet, if she tries to report that to Instagram, to Meta, as it now is, um, it doesn't breach any community guidelines. This is just a man posting a picture of a front door on a social media platform. How is that hateful? How is that a crime? A fundamental failure to uh, recognise the pattern of abuse and the the intimidation, the power and control means these issues are not taken seriously. I'm
1: going off off on a tangent slightly, but actually what you're saying about the internet... uh, see, I'm loath to say I'm a victim of this stuff right because um you don't wanna uh I don't know it's it's such an unusual and new space, but I receive so much abuse from men online, and I am constantly constantly terrified by how little is done and a man was abusing me, and I replied to him uh telling him what I thought of him, and I was done for hate speech on the platform and I find it and this is happening relentlessly, to be honest, like it happens so often, you know, the the way that people can evade any sort of um, accountability on social media is really terrifying. And I suppose, I don't know, is it something that that refuge um, can do or that we can do? What can we do to tackle online abuse in the context of male violence? And and I I suppose domestic violence, violence to an extent, because I guess the law can't keep up with the speed that technology works at
2: yeah you're right tech abuse is one of the rising and most insidious forms of domestic abuse that we're seeing um and i think the law has to keep up actually or it has to at least make an attempt to uh Mm. we have a specialist tech abuse team at refuge we founded it several years ago recognizing this was growing but tech abuse this won't surprise you at all during lockdown was one of the areas we saw exponentially explode um you know the living online became absolutely essential to survival in every aspect of our world. And Mm -hmm. far too many women experiencing what you're describing um, and worse um, feel absolutely no option but to disappear from these online spaces. And that is still the basic advice they'll get from many police officers and from the tech giants. Just delete your account, love. You know, just save yourself all the hassle and delete your account. You can't delete yourself from the virtual world. Um, I, I was reading... Yeah, just the last few days, we've been starting to see the first reports out of the metaverse, haven't we, that if you go into the metaverse, um, you're likely to get virtually groped. I mean, why does this even surprise me? Um, So, yes, Refuge Mm. has a specialist tech team. We have trusted flagger status. We can and do advocate and lobby on the behalf of women who cannot get the tech giants Mm. to listen to them. But really, we need the online safety bill, which is coming up and going through Parliament relatively soon, to recognise violence against women and girls on the very face of the bill, as a very very serious issue at the moment it recognizes terrorism and child abuse we want violence against women and girls recognized as well because it is so so pervasive and part of a pattern of abuse it's it's rare that we're finding now there's physical abuse that doesn't have a tech element to it so it's completely intertwined it's not not that it's abs- acceptable in any way that someone can just abuse you online, but it's not just abuse online. We're seeing people abuse people online, stalk them, stalk them in real life, start to be able to turn up, threaten them, control them. And ultimately, we're, we've seen homicides related to people um, stalking people through online devices. And I think this is so serious and yet it's barely ever spoken about.
0: The, the next question that we want to ask you is a pretty huge one (laughs) and I don't think there's necessarily um like a you know a concise answer to it but why do you think male violence has been tolerated for so long and why has the why has there been so much historically so much victim blaming and also you know the onus has been put on women as well to keep themselves Safe And while we teach women to adapt their lives to keep themselves safe, there is little to no work being done to educate men around, you know, their misogyny or the aggressions that make, um, that can can make environments extremely hostile for women. Why, Why do you think it's gone tolerated and unchallenged and unquestioned for so long? In your opinion, (laughs)
2: sorry, big question. No, it's a reasonable. it is the question, isn't it? And I think there's a whole range of reasons. Fundamentally, patriarchy and misogyny, you know, it took until the 1990s for rape inside marriage even to be recognised as a crime for far too long domestic abuse was seen as behind closed doors you know battered wives a family matter keep it private don't let's talk about it even now we use language like an abusive relationship but it's not an abusive relationship you are in a relationship with someone who is abusing you so we don't use the language that really identifies what's happening that makes it sound like um,
1: like it's a co- like a like a a union like we're doing it you've got you've got a
2: challenging relationship we've got an open relationship mutual Yeah, a
1: a polyamorous relationship, an open relationship, an abusive relationship. It's nuts. You can't you can't... Oh my God, why have I never... I actually didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was... um, But that that is so
0: true, because then that terminology places some... Of the yeah, some of that onto the the yeah. woman or the or the the victim in the relationship. That's a yeah. really good so point. So in everything actually.
2: we do, in our language, in the way our society is structured, in what we do mm. and don't take seriously, in our laws, um, in our police force, all of this is normalised and therefore it is tolerated and and growing. It's a growing problem, and I think. Mm. During COVID, uh, the United Nations said there was a hidden pandemic, a hidden epidemic of, um, of domestic abuse around the world. Um, but because it was shut behind closed doors, happening privately, not on the street, not in front of us. Because it was happening to women predominantly. It wasn't spoken about. So that's why when you asked me earlier, what do I do as CEO? A lot of my job is to try and tackle some of these misconceptions. These are difficult conversations. I'm not saying all men are abusers or all men are evil or this is a situation where women are are the victims and only can be victims and men are the people with the problem. Of course, it's not as simple as that. Um, but nor is it as simple as a few bad apples who we just have to kind of show tough justice and lock away. It's much more pervasive in society. Why don't women feel safe to report because of victim blaming, because this has been tolerated for so long? And I think probably my biggest challenge as Chief Executive of Refuge is the balance of how do I prioritize being there for as many women and children right now as possible with frontline services that can save their lives and help them rebuild a different future for themselves and their family versus how do we tackle these longest-standing systemic issues and actually therefore reduce the need for our services at all to the point where ideally they're not needed. No-one wants to be in a position where, as a woman, you still have to run. You still need a safe house. You still need a physical refuge. And yet the demand for places and refuges is Far outstrips supply and has done for years and years and years. So, so that is the real challenge. I think. Um, how do we stop it being tolerated? That's actually our, our charitable vision: um, a world where domestic abuse is no longer tolerated. Um, and I think we feel a very long way from that.
1: I think that's such a good point about the language, and, and we talked to Natasha about it before because the second you make a joke out of something, it loses its severity, it loses its seriousness, it loses all weight, really, and. And the ability to take it, you know, remotely seriously just vanishes. And you know, as you were speaking, then I was just thinking, I was like, how many times have I described a man in a vest as wearing a wife beater? How many times have I thought about mm. this? You know, I saw a joke on TikTok about like Stella Artois, and and you know, because that's the beer that that you know it has the associations. And and the people, the the fact that these are jokes that still are so prevalent, it just feels huge. Which is a uh, horrible start to my question which is about your optimism for going forwards and what what does it look like for you now what you know you, you touch on there what your vision is but can you just can you tell me more really what you know keeps keeps you going with all of this
2: Um, I think it is incredible women like Natasha and I'm very very lucky in my role that I meet a lot of survivors so again that's quite deliberately chosen language by them and us Um, not victims but survivors it takes immense courage to tell your story particularly to tell it publicly but even privately to to a friend Um, and seeing the courage of those women who come forward and knowing that Refuge has an incredible brand, an incredible reputation, huge reach as the largest specialist provider in in England, um, and the ability to take those stories out and, and save other people's lives, the ability to help someone think, actually, what's been happening to me is not normal and it's not okay, and I'm not going to tolerate it. And I think there are reasons to be hopeful, you know, not just the confidence of individual women to say i'm going to turn this horrific experience into my power and i'm going to do something to change the world and change other people's lives but also this growth in empathy that i mentioned right at the start when we were all trapped in our own homes many of us in quite nice homes if we're honest avoiding our commute and being able to kind of multitask around Mm -hmm. our houses we felt confined and we felt trapped and we felt controlled and i think That has changed the dialogue and from going from being a really taboo, um, difficult to talk about issue, domestic abuse is coming out from behind the closed doors slightly and being discussed Mm -hmm. because actually for that period, we all thought, oh my goodness, what would it be like if I was trapped behind this door with someone I couldn't escape Mm -hmm. from? And that was the reality for so many women. Their tiny, tiny windows where they were walking the children to school or popping to pick up a prescription that was their chance to get away that was their kind of lifeline that they were clinging to and it went um, so I guess I'm inspired and I find hope because fundamentally I'm an activist at <laughs> heart uh, and I think when something is outrageous that does make me angry and it inspires me to action and I think there's a lot of people who are brave who have survived an unbelievable amount and who are prepared to work with refuge to tell their story like Natasha and to say this can't keep happening and I think that society is listening. We've got a really long way to go, but we've changed things in society before. Um, you know, we stopped smoking indoors. We started wearing seatbelts in cars. These things are just kind of normal to us now, but we're unthinkable at the time. It should be possible to end domestic abuse. There is no reason why domestic abuse should be tolerated and continue in our society. And therefore, I find a lot of power and energy i suppose in the fact that that is what i get up every day to try and do alongside all sorts of other incredible inspiring women particularly survivor ambassadors like natasha
0: that's amazing um i'd love to ask if there is to everyone anyone and everyone listening right now if there was if there is something that you would potentially like them to know about domestic abuse that they don't know that you think might help progress this conversation and you know, help domestic abuse cease to exist, I guess, or contribute towards it? Is there something that you feel
2: like people should know? Um, The number one thing that I would say that I often say in interviews is you're not on your own. I think the most horrendous Mm. thing about abuse and violence against women and girls in general is that you feel so ashamed and so isolated and alone. So you are absolutely not alone. If you are not comfortable with what is happening in your relationship, if it doesn't feel right to you, you can contact us we run the national domestic abuse helpline it's open 24 hours a day every single day you can call us we will believe you gaslighting and coercive control is so much a part of abuse um undermining a woman's confidence and ability to recognize what's happening to her and to believe that this is not all right um is a very, very central part of abuse. And if you've then also got the police saying, oh no, you know, it's just a bad apple, there isn't anything wrong here. So if all around you, institutions and society are also saying, what's wrong with you? Just put up with it, this is normal. It's not normal. If you're feeling uncomfortable and you want help, call us and we will talk to you. We can support you then and there, or we can at least help you understand what's happening to you. We will believe you and and we will stand by you. So, I mean, that sounds very simple, but that's the number one thing I'd say, whatever it is that doesn't feel right, if it's something around your devices, if it seems like someone always knows where you are, if um, someone seems to understand or know bits of information about your life that you know you haven't shared, if things are happening in your home, if your lights or your heating are, are changing and you don't understand why that's happening, all of these can be signs of abuse. I'm not saying they are, they could be bad wiring, but, but if, if <laughs> you are concerned, then you um, then don't doubt yourself because a perpetrator will try yeah. and take away your confidence and make you doubt your own judgment. That is part of the abuse. Um, so do contact mm. us, please.
0: And I think that's crucial, isn't it? Because there is that that element of self-doubt um, that is is sort of uh, cultivated and fostered by the by the perpetrator and probably and and for someone who's been with an abuser for so long there's probably you know their own judgment is sort of dampened at this point as well and it's hard to get perspective so I think even externalizing it even if you're not sure if it's abuse right even if you're not sure really what is going on but I think just externalizing it and being able to get another perspective on it and to be able to zoom out and see what's going on which is often where we need uh you know second parties to come in and help us with that so I think that's really brilliant advice to just if you know if you're feeling something
2: it's worth exploring it definitely if there's some discomfort if you feel discomfort that something is not right in your relationship then reach out and just talk to us. Um, I can give you the number, yeah. it's 0808 2024 7. So like I said, there's specialist help, it's um, female call handlers, it's totally confidential. Um, you can call, you can live chat us as well. Um, we will we will talk to you, we can provide specific advice on all sorts of mm. things like how to secure your devices if they've been compromised um, in relation to tech abuse, but also just help you talk through your experience. And if you are in immediate danger mm. now, we can we can help you get away immediately.
0: Yeah. For someone who's who's potentially, I mean, which I imagine is the case for a lot of victims terrified of contacting anybody who might be able to help them for fear of what their their abuser will do. I mean, maybe they are concerned that their devices are, are, are tracked or w- watched and they don't feel like the chat service is an option or the phone call service. Is there anything at all? You think that they can do
2: yeah if you're really that scared um i think there's the ask for annie scheme you can go into boots and various other high street stores as well but every boots pharmacy that's a, a relatively simple place for many people to get to and ask for annie ask the pharmacist for annie they will immediately connect okay. you to the national domestic abuse helpline using their own devices and phones so that's a, a nationwide scheme um that that operates that's another way because often it's possible to find a reason why you need to go to a pharmacy. So, yeah, there's, there's great schemes. Yeah. Um, our website, if you go to our website, has a quick escape button, so you can always immediately escape. Um, it, so, okay. yeah, we design things as safely as we can, but you're right. Um, mm. You have to make your own risk assessment. And if you are in a relationship where there is someone who is abusing you and you feel in danger yeah that danger is real so you should take it seriously listen to yourself listen to your instincts um, and and ask for help in a way and a time when you feel it's safest uh, women are making risk assessments every day like we said uh, all of us yeah. how we walk home the routes we choose um women who are living with an abusive partner are making much much more serious um safety assessments every single moment of every day for themselves and for their children and mm. um, and it's far too easy for us to victim blame again and say, "Why don't women leave?" You know, why on earth did she stay for so long? These are complex decisions that women have to make at the time when their confidence is undermined. They're often isolated. So, um, yeah, reach out to where feels safe. There's something that I
1: have heard through all three interviews. It's depressing as shit, but there's also a lot of hope. And seeing that Natasha and and you and and then amazing lawyers and you know, there are so many people. Like, I, I just, I think that that's the key takeaway from this whole episode is that there is support. Like, you know, it is so depressing sitting here and, and being on social media and it's bad news all the time and it's dick pics and it's bad news and it's hate crimes and, and met police texts. And, you know, it's really easy to feel disheartening. And also the statistics, you know, it's not it's not good, but there is hope and you guys are here and you 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 will listen and you will help them and you and they will get support. And that. It's um, been amazing to see it from three sides and to really hear it and understand how this process works and, and to to really believe in what you do. So I want to thank you so much for yourself and for your amazing team and for, for facilitating this whole episode because it's been really valuable, I think.
2: Thank you so much. This gives me real hope. The fact that you want to record a podcast talking about this, three interviews taking all this time to explore this issue, you know, for far too long, it has just been not spoken about private problems within a marriage within a relationship. And um, actually exploding that is a big part of the solution. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. The National Domestic Abuse Helpline, again for anybody that needs it, is 0808 2000 247. If you are in a position to donate to Refuge, please do. The link is in our show notes. We will see you again next Monday and in the meantime, happy International Women's Day.